Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Classical Music Decoded. This is a new series called Conversations in which I speak to people who are prominent in classical music in South Africa, people you might have heard of or seen on stage, but about whom we know very little. Well, it's time to find out about them. Now, a few years ago, I attended a concert at the Lind Auditorium, and the conductor was from the US and was new to me. In fact, he was new to everyone at that time. However, since then, he's become a fixture on the South African classical music scene. I cannot think of a single season of the JPO in which he was not involved, and he has also conducted the KZNPO many, many times. The conductor is Daniel Boyko, my guest today, and there's no doubt that because of his extensive work here, he's had a significant impact on classical music performance in this country. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Dino. Great to see you again. Yeah, great to be talking to you on this rainy afternoon in Johannesburg. <laughs> and cold. Uh, yeah, it is fairly cold for this time of the year, the Southern Hemisphere summer. Now, I'm curious about how it all began for you. And so I'd like to ask, did you grow up in a family in which music was taken seriously? Um, the short answer is yes. And the uh, semi-long answer is that both of my parents grew up in the Soviet Union. Uh, when you grow up in the Soviet Union and you show, uh, and a child shows any kind of talent, that talent gets nurtured. That was uh, normal life in the Soviet Union. So when my father and my mother showed talent for music early on, let's say age four, five or so, um, they were taken to a special music school and it was then uh, checked out whether that was indeed the case. And um, then they would enroll in a special music school, a music school that would be parallel to a regular school. They would attend that I think every day, parallel to a regular school, uh, throughout their uh, formative years, all the way to when they go to a conservatory, when you are age 16, 17, 18, mm -hmm. something like that. Uh, and, and then they both became professional musicians. So uh, there was no question about it on, on their parents' mind whether they're going to become professional musicians or not. The talent was in music, so music it's going to be. Right, so they were given a specialized education. Absolutely. Right, and both your parents are instrumentalists? My father is a violinist and my mother is a pianist. And so I'm assuming that growing up you were surrounded by music, that this was... You, d you didn't grow up in the Soviet Union? No, uh, I grew up in Israel, uh, to where they immigrated in the late 60s, um, And uh, I was uh, made to study the violin at first. I think when I was five or maybe six months, apparently I didn't show enough talent for that. So my father had my mother uh, start teaching me the piano. And uh, then piano continued off and on until I became a professional conductor, I suppose. Yeah. From what I've, I'm hearing, it was mostly classical music, Were there other genres of music present in your childhood? Well, here's the problem. Um, my parents were not very forceful uh, about me pursuing a, the, the profession of music. 
So uh, I rebelled and uh, I, I did not want to become anything associated with classical music because what I really liked was uh, pop and rock uh, and uh, breakdance. Oh, in the wow. 80s. Yeah. You still have a few moves. <laughs> well, you know, so um, I, I, I enjoyed that very much. And it wasn't until I was 17 and started singing in a choir where my, my love for classical music, per se, returned um, and was beginning to develop, first with singing and then with conducting. So was it at that point that you realized that classical music was something you wanted to pursue professionally or, at the very least, a bit more seriously? Mm, not really, because uh, being the child of uh, Soviet uh, professional musicians, uh, becoming a musician or starting to become a uh, professional musician at age 17 or 18 or 19 is uh, ridiculous. A bit late in the game. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> that's not in their lexicon. Uh, when, when I told my parents that I was going to become a music major at the university, they giggled. Uh, because uh, they thought, well, how nice. Uh, that'll be a great hobby for you, boy. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> what, are you, what, what do you think you're doing? Um, so I, I, I didn't really think that I could become a professional musician. I just kept on singing and taking private lessons. And, and, and it's only when I, I, I got the bug of conducting after trying it for a little bit um, that I got more and more intense about it uh, and, and started pursuing conducting uh, as, a, as a profession. What made you stick to your plan then? Because, you know, for most people, um, if, if you announce, okay, I, I intend to become a musician and the people closest to you, like your family members and people who know you well will say, yeah, you know, you're good at this, you should continue. Or mm, maybe you should keep a you know, a, a few other options open. So yeah. what made you, you know, stick to your, your decision to well, go into music? I, I suppose uh, w when you're that quote-unquote old and trying to become a professional musician, um, the assumption is that uh, you just don't know enough because uh, everyone else who has been becoming a professional musician from an early age already know a lot more, harmony, theory, etc. Uh, being um, uh, being uh, very good on their instrument, etc., etc. Uh, so uh, uh, in that way, my parents were right. I was behind on a lot. Um, but when I sat on a rehearsal of Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony... Oh, beautiful symphony. In like the second or third row, alone in, in, in this big hall, and realized the amount of sound possibility that came out of an orchestra, I, I, I just had this itch to try and touch that, to try and, and f see how that feels. I knew nothing about conducting. I didn't know anything about leading an orchestra or, or, or making musicians think in a certain way. I just wanted to touch that sound mm -hmm. because the sound that I was used to was the sound of a choir. And even though I enjoyed that very much, it, it was uh, in a way limited 
to a certain extent because you had four types of voices and even if you divided them into 8, 16, 32, it, it was still the same. Uh, maybe in a richer sound, maybe in a bigger sound, but um, the, the, the type of sound, the color of the sound for me just remained that. And when I heard an orchestra play this, uh, this kind of composer, that kind of composer, this kind of instrumentation, that kind of instrumentation, it, it seemed to me that the possibilities are endless. And I needed to try that. And when I did try it with, with a little bit of conducting in the very beginning, I realized that um, I was, uh, in a way, um, physically gifted for this particular type of uh, music making. Um, so then I continued uh, to, to try more and more, and then I started studying uh, privately as well uh, with Viktor Yampolsky. He was my first uh, conducting teacher. Yep. And, um, you know, things started developing. I, I had a community orchestra to work with, etc., uh, etc. Et so, um, yeah. Okay. Well, now, you continued your education as a conductor in Russia, you had a very rigorous education there where many top conductors have studied. And Ilya Musin was one of your teachers. And those who knew him tend to revere him. So tell me a bit about him, his history, and why was he so revered? Well, um... Oh, before you answer that, how did you get to Russia? Why did you choose to study there? I got to Russia because... Um, I was studying uh, privately, and I was looking for a place to study further. My father's quartet, he plays in a string quartet, the Fine Arts Quartet, um, returned from a tour in Russia at the time. This was um, uh, June, uh, no, this was March of 93. Um, and he told me um, that while he was there, he just happened to go to one of the classes of this Professor Musin. He wanted to see uh, at what level is, is conducting being taught in Russia. Um, and what he said is that his jaw dropped. Mm -hmm. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. And all he said to me was, drop everything and go. Which for me was uh, very uh, surprising to hear from... Uh, an emigre from the Soviet Union, but I took his advice, and Viktor Yampolsky also uh, encouraged me, and I went. So, um, and I stayed for three years. Now, uh, by the time Musin died in 1999, he taught in the same classroom at the conservatory in St. Petersburg for 65 mm. years. When I got to him, um, it was already... Um, 64 years, uh, no, uh, 59 years in the same classroom. That's when I got to him. I got to him and he was 89 years old. Wow. Yeah. Um, w the amount of uh, experience he had and the amount of knowledge he had and the amount of uh, uh, just, just storytelling that he had was, was mind-blowing. Um, but that wasn't really the reason why he was so revered and why he was so successful as a teacher. He was so successful because when he was himself a student of Nikolai Malko, I think this was in the 1920s, that didn't last long. It lasted for maybe two years because then Malko emigrated to Denmark. 
and left the class of five students to Musin, saying, you're the most advanced one, the class is yours, goodbye. Musin didn't know what to do with the class because as he tell, would tell it, he, he was green. He didn't know what conducting was. It's not like you had books or videos or anything. to. All, all you could do is observe those who came through mm-hmm. St. Petersburg as conductors at the time. So what he decided to do is get himself a job conducting a student orchestra in the local technicum to hone his skills. And while he was doing that, he wrote down absolutely everything he observed and heard and saw. And, and what ensued is, is basically a, a, a new way of teaching, conducting, a new philosophy, uh, a point of view about how a person is supposed to use their body to communicate, how, how gestures become a language, and, and how do you affect the psyche of the musicians in front of you without playing their instruments. Mm. <laughs> You see, so uh, he became actually thinking about it all, and he wrote it all down, um, and he passed it on. And and this was the education. The education was not how to do one, two, three, four, or one, two, three in a, in a conducting pattern, but to actually try and realize on a, on a conscious level what is it that makes the other people in front of you playing an instrument play this way or that way and how can you make them do it without actually asking them but only with gestures that's it that's what it came down to so it sounds to me like by the time you got to the Soviet Union for your lessons there uh, Musin was already like a one person institution with this wealth of knowledge and expertise and yeah well, he wasn't, he wasn't just one person anymore because behind him was about 60 years of students. And those students, uh, just to name a few, were uh, Yuri Temirkanov, mm. who just he recently died. passed away. Yes. yes. Uh, Valery Gergiev, Semyon Bichkov, Vasily Sinaisky, etc., etc. I just named four. Mm-hmm. But 50, uh, 65 years of uh, graduating conductors uh, is a lot of uh, is a whole world of conductors who then go out into the world and and um, uh, develop their own style of conducting. Of course, influenced by Musin, of mm-hmm. course. But uh, by the time I was a student there, I already saw videos of Gergiev and videos of Temirkanov and videos of Bichkov, and we. We, we, we were disciples of, of that kind of style of conducting. Now, I understand that you've written a book about Musin. I didn't write it. It's, didn't. it's Musin who wrote it, mm-hmm. and it's called The Language of the Conductor's Gesture, and I translated it from Russian to English. Is that the first English translation that's available? Of that book, yes. Okay, where is this book available? How can one well, get... uh, at the moment, it's only available through the publisher, which is Sfera, uh, S-F-E-R-A, uh, dot com, I think. Uh, they're based in London. Um, everyone who worked on the book is actually an ex-Musin student. Me, as translator, uh, the publisher is also a conductor, ex-Musin uh, student, uh, Damian Iorio, and uh, Lev Parikyan, who's also 
uh, well, he's he's an ex-conductor now because he is a children's author and he was the editor of the book. So uh, it was a whole team of uh, ex-Musin students, um, obviously uh, out of great love for for that person um, and and for the profession. Okay, so I, that's that's very interesting to hear, you know, because. I suppose when I see you conducting an orchestra, which I will in a few days' time, one of the things you're bringing to the table is uh, the guidance of your teachers. It's mostly you and, you know, your own ideas that you formulated over the years, but part of it is the guidance of your teachers and how they've influenced you. Absolutely, especially Musin, because he had very clear, um, very clear ideas about uh, human nature and why we should adhere to human nature rather than superficial elements that can be invented on top of human nature. Uh, for instance, uh, conducting patterns. Uh, the way we do one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, that was invented. This is not part of human nature. Uh, to use that within human nature so that the people uh, playing their instruments in an orchestra actually understand what you want from them is the point. Um, and uh, that influence is always with me. And I think about it on a conscious level all the time. Uh, even though I might, I, I have most probably developed my own kind of style and, and, and my own kind of uh, physicality when, when I conduct. We're all different. No one is absolutely the same. Um, but the, um, uh, the undercurrent is the Musin philosophy. Right, right. Apart from South Africa, you have lived and worked in several other countries. Which ones and what did you do? I mean, conducting, of course, but is there anything else that you did apart from uh, regular orchestra conducting? Yes. Um, well, the, the biggest part of my life uh, outside of of conducting, uh, which is performance, um, is music administration. Um, and that, when, that is when I decided to leave Chicago for New York to, to become manager of artistic administration with the New York Philharmonic. And for five years, I, um, whew, uh, it's, 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 it's a lot of work. That, that is a big institution with many concerts and not only orchestral but also chamber music that musicians of the Philharmonic play amongst themselves and also with uh, guest artists. Um, uh, and I uh, oversaw the implementation of uh, almost all of it. And I say this to anyone who would listen that um, I wish every performing musician would... Uh, take some kind of, uh, uh, I don't even want to call it a course, but let's mm -hmm. call it an understanding in music administration. You know, seeing the other side of the, of the fence, understanding that by the time you show up on stage, 80% of the work for that concert has been done, has been implemented. The concert itself is just a small little part mm -hmm. that, of course, everyone waits for and, and everyone loves, but there's so much going on behind the scenes um, that a lot of performing musicians don't know and don't appreciate, uh, which is why I, I feel that I was very, very lucky to, to get into that uh, kind of um, atmosphere uh, because today I have a 
completely new appreciation for all of that. So what then are the main components of that 80%? Well, uh, you have to, for instance, uh, the basic stuff, decide on a date for a concert, decide on a venue for a concert, uh, decide uh, on a program. And programming, mind you, is, is the most difficult because you have to be innovative and popular at the same time. Um, and, and that's just uh, very difficult to do. Uh, pleasing all the constituents who are involved is uh, almost impossible. And then um, deciding on uh, guest soloists, deciding on guest conductors, deciding on themes, on festivals, on any kind of birthday, composer birthday celebrations, all of that gets taken into account uh, within a certain budget. Let's not forget. Of course. Yes. So, um, production, uh, everything. Uh, understanding, understanding how long a concert needs to be, um, managing the public uh, with, with the selling of tickets, with uh, understanding that there's also VIPs in, in the public that, that you need to uh, be careful about. Mm -hmm. uh, there are million and one things to think about. Just when you think that you've thought about it all, something else pops up. And um, it's, it's just, to me, very interesting how involved it all is. You know, it's seemingly nothing. Seemingly it's a two-hour show of just three or four pieces with a lot of work on the side. <laughs> and you were the person who did it. Yes. <laughs> Now, you also worked in Hungary for a period. Is that correct? I did, as, as the chief conductor of, a, of an orchestra in Budapest. Was that a good experience? It was a great experience, I have to say. Um, first of all, in music, everything is about culture. Everything is about the place you are presenting that music and what that music means to the place where you are presenting it. And that's culture. Whether, mm -hmm. whether, whether it's a place that accepts this kind of music, orchestral, classical, or a place that accepts it less, or a place that doesn't accept it at all because they're used to a different kind of sound, um, that makes all the difference. And being in the middle of Europe, in Budapest, uh, in a place that uh, has an incredible amount of this kind of culture, of, of the um, classical, orchestral Uh, music was absolutely fascinating because it's not a big deal. It's just normal. It's what people do. Mm -hmm. It's what people listen to. There is a population for that. And, and that's very exciting when you don't have to um, convince anyone of the beauty or the necessity or the benefit of this kind of music, it's actually, you know, it's a breath of fresh air because you know that it will be accepted. Now, what you present, you know, that, that's a different story. You can, you can do all kinds of fun things. 
but you know, working with amazing uh, European musicians was was also a lot of fun. Again, because of tradition, because each each musician in that orchestra have their own tradition of hundreds of years of of this kind of music um, to to uh, support them, um, and it shows. In, in the rehearsals, it shows in the concerts, it shows in the kind of sound that they make. So uh, I absolutely uh, enjoyed it very much. Has your experience in, in South Africa been a bit more of a struggle, considering that you know, classical music has a bit of an arm wrestle to make its way here? Uh, well, look, um, obviously and I say obviously with a big O, uh, we are in South Africa. Uh, it's a place that has its own traditions and its own cultures and its own music that is far older than anything that came from Europe. Uh, that's not to negate music that came from Europe because uh, I'll be the first one to say that music is music and it doesn't matter as long as you like it. And if you like it, that's great. That's, that's, that's wonderful, uh, and it doesn't matter where it came from. Now, South Africa had and has a huge tradition of classical music, obviously from Europe. Um, and that, in the last 20, 25 years, has diminished for whatever reasons. They can be political, they can be economic, they can be demographic, they can be, uh, they can be a thousand and one... Uh, reasons. The biggest reason is that there's more competition with other kinds of music. Mm. If you look back to uh, the 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, that's the beginning of, of, of uh, rock and pop and anything else that, that came after that. So classical music or, or the European music did not have that much competition. So this is what people listen to. Um, if they were so inclined. Today it's diminished because there's other kinds of music. Yeah? It's not that classical music became worse. It's the same. And, and those who love it, love it. Yeah. And, and that will never go away. Now, apart from classical music, is there anything else in which you take a keen interest? Do you play golf or run marathons or anything <laughs> like that? I, I Cook, love... are you a gourmet chef? I, I, I love to cook. Uh, I'm not a gourmet chef, uh, although my family says that uh, I do well. <laughs> and uh, I, I love um, the motion picture, you know, uh, not just movies, uh, movies, series, whatever, anything that's a motion picture. I, I, I also love the way that's done, I, the process. I'm just, I'm always curious about process. And um, mm -hmm. I, I love the way movies are made and what it takes to make one, even for just 15 minutes, 20 minutes. So that's always very fascinating to me. And I also enjoy other kinds of music. Uh, like I mentioned, 80s. And mm -hmm. I love uh, Brazilian uh, bossa nova. Same and, here. Yeah. So uh, there's and, and, and food in South Africa and wine. Yeah, well, you live in the Western Cape, so yes. you're in a good place for a while. Very good place, very good place. It's very enjoyable. Now, when you look back over your career so far, um, which projects or accomplishments have meant the most to you? Are there things where you, you think about them and you feel, 
I'm so glad I did that, because they brought you a certain meaning. Well, I have to say that artistic administration did that for me, because until then, um, I thought I had an understanding of how it all works, and I sort of understood what, what it takes until I actually had to do it. And, and uh, it, it really opened my eyes and opened my horizons and gave me uh, a deeper understanding about the meaning of it all. Because to understand that and to understand what it takes to eventually be that force that moves the other person, that force that makes the other person um, experience all kinds of emotions, in, in that, that come out of, of a series of sounds, to me, is, is an incredible feat. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's, it, it's actually unbelievable. How is that possible? That a bunch of sounds in succession can make people feel a mm. certain way and congregate and be pulled towards something. I think that's incredible. Uh, and to be able to be part of the machine that produces that is wonderful. Of course, yes. Yeah, there's, there's something very profound mm. that happens there. Now, I, I just have one more question Absolutely. For you. And that is, uh, assuming you had the personnel, the money, the time, the support, whatever you needed, what project would you implement or what goal would you try and achieve? doesn't have to be music could be anything you want I tell you I tell you what what happens sometimes and I see it here in South Africa is that uh, uh, budgets are finite and grants and foundations and and money that comes from somewhere is also finite and um, what is sometimes sad to see is a, a talented young musician that does not have the access to uh, the next step when it comes to a teacher or to be able to go in and take uh, master classes with certain someone, uh, be able to travel to a, a, a summer program where you sit somewhere and, and you are in, in, in intense music making for six weeks. And it's always because of money. But once in a while, you hear of, of talented young musicians that just don't have the access to something like this. You know, it, it, they have access to a limited something or other that will limit them in their development as a musician and will amount to nothing. Uh, and the only way to make sure that they have all the possibility to become what they think they can become is to let them do it. But to let them do it means having to pay for it. Um, and when you don't have the money and you don't have the ability, sometimes that dream dies. You know, so it would it would be nice to be able to fulfill that um, wish, grant that wish to someone who wants to become a musician. Um, and not and let and not let them starve on the way because they don't have the money for for this or the money for that. Uh, yeah, so that would be a nice uh, project to uh, lead. No, oh, that would be indeed. Daniel, thank you very much for speaking to me here on Classical Music Decoded Conversations, 
and looking forward to hearing you conduct orchestras in future. Thank you for having me. That was Classical Music Decoded Conversations with me, Dino Madramutu. If you'd like to get in touch, my email address is cmd at vivaldi.net. I'm also on Twitter. My handle is Dino, D-E-A-N-O underscore mad. Feel free to listen to the other episodes in this podcast series. (laughs) 